All right. Okay, it's good to be with you. Uh, my name is Kenny, if you haven't met before. Um, this Sunday, what we're up to is we're continuing in a series on the Gospel of John. Over the last two weeks, what we've been doing is we've been reading through a section of John's Gospel called the Last Supper Discourse that stretches from chapter 14 to, 14, to chapter 17. And that Last Supper Discourse ends... Um, it ends with Jesus getting up from the table where he's been eating with his disciples and then inviting them to come with him um, to pray in a place called the Garden of Gethsemane. And what's important about this moment in John's Gospel is that this is the moment that Jesus knows he is kind of crossing a point of no return. So by coming back to Jerusalem in the first place, um, Jesus knows that he's inviting his own arrest. That's clear in John's Gospel. We're going to cover that stuff when we get there. Um, but now this arrest is upon him. And he knows that that arrest is going to lead to his interrogation. That that's going to lead to his torture. And then ultimately his execution. So this moment of getting up from the table is a moment of like stepping into the final part um, of his story here. But this pathway that he's about to walk that involves all these terrible things is also something, as we've talked about the last few weeks, that is a key part of God's plan that he's set in motion here, not to bring about defeat, which is what this is going to seem like, but of course to bring about victory. And so what we're going to do is over the next three weeks, we're going to be exploring this surprising victory plan through the lens of three fully embodied commitments that Jesus makes in this section of the gospel. So three fully embodied commitments that Jesus makes. That's what we're going to do our next three weeks. And today's part of the story is going to cover Jesus's capture, his arrest. That's our subject for today. But before we get there, I want to tell a silly story. There's a lot of heaviness today. So we're going to do a silly story at the start. It involves this microphone as a prop here in a minute. All right. So this past week in our small group, we discussed our past experiences with Christian traditions during the season of Lent and Easter, which is the season that we're now in. And as somebody who grew up Southern Baptist once upon a time, I told our group that at least growing up, I never really observed or experienced Lent in any kind of a particular way. I don't know if that's common to all Southern Baptist churches, but it was common to mine. We just didn't do this. We didn't talk about this. I had never participated in like an Ash Wednesday service until I moved here to Annapolis. Um, I had never heard of pancake suppers, which is a thing that happens. Some of y'all do that um, on Fat Tuesday. I didn't know that Fat Tuesday in French is Mardi Gras. Like that had never clicked for me. Um, my church didn't observe Palm Sunday in any meaningful way. We didn't do Good Friday. But there is one thing we did do that I don't know if it's common to all Southern Baptist churches, but it's common, it happened in mine. And that is during this season of Lent, what we did is we put on a surprisingly expensive and involved Easter play. Anybody else do that? All right. The big play. And actually, it's the wrong term. It wasn't an Easter play. It was an Easter musical. Right? It was... Wild. It was like the wildest thing. Our choir director wrote it. It was super long. It was like two and a half hours long. We pulled all the dialogue from the Gospels. It was like super intense with all these songs. And, and like we weren't a huge church. It was probably a church of 250, 300 people. Um, and like everybody in the church was involved. And then we like 
advertise it, invite people from the community, and then sell tickets. I don't know what that went to, but something. And it was huge. There were like big sets, there were big lights, there was like fog machines for multiple scenes, especially rising from the grave. Like the fog's gonna pour out the, the, the open tomb. Um, and here's the thing. In addition to all that, there were also auditions. And when I was 15, I auditioned and earned my very first role in the Christmas Easter play. Christmas. <laughs> in the Easter play. All right. Whew. Anyways, the point is who I got to play. I got to play Malchus. Nobody? All right, yeah. Do you guys know who Malchus is? Yes. Anybody? Truly, I'm curious. Yes. Anybody? You know, Katie? Okay. He got his ear cut off. Yes, exactly. He's the guy. He's the servant of the high priest who, when the Romans come to arrest Jesus in the garden, he gets his ear sliced off by Jesus' disciple, Peter. Peter, right? Who else? Right? He doesn't have any lines in the play, so the audition was a bit weird. But what is important <laughs> is that there is a fun prop, right? So, and that's really where my silly story begins. When I got cast as Malchus in the play that first year, my parents jumped all the way in on the Easter play. My dad, who loves weapons of all sorts, like became the armorer on set for the Easter play, and so he like made period-accurate costumes for all of the centurions and stuff, and he built replica Roman swords out of scraps of metal he had in his shed. It was really intense. And then my mom, who loves both makeup and loves horror movies, took on all the special effects for the play. And so, since I was Malchus, what she did is she like molded this latex, this fake latex ear, and then on the inside of the ear, she like added this latex pocket that she could fill with blood, right? Fake blood. And so the idea was that when the actor playing Peter in the play like swings his sword, right, and like slices my ear off, I'm going to like reach immediately up, I'm gonna like smash the blood pocket so it spurts blood everywhere, and then I'm gonna flick the ear off somewhere else. I'm gonna hold it, and then there's a sponge in my palm too with more blood in it. And so I can like press it, and then it's just gonna bleed all over the place. And then the idea was, because it's a sponge, once I pulled all the blood out, like Jesus comes over and he heals me, and so what happens is I just like smear the side of my ear, and then when he lifts his hand away, my real ear is back. So that people see it here go, it bleeds, and then, oh, look, there it is. So it's all restored. It was a miracle. Anyway. So the day of this performance comes, the first performance, and I have spent an absurd amount of time for a character like Malchus in like the makeup chair with my mom, and then it's like time for the big scene, and I like go to grab Jesus to arrest him. It's weird when I think about this, I was also 15. I must have looked like a tiny child, but still. <laughs> I go to grab Jesus, and then Peter comes over, and here's where I use my microphone as a prop to show you exactly what happens. So he comes over, like I'm there, he's supposed to cut my ear off, and then he does like the weakest swing of all time. So he does, we watched it over and over on video later. He does one of these. He's like, and he like pirouettes in front of me with this like real lazy little thing. 
And like, I like, I am fully committed to the bit, right? So he does that, and I'm like, smash my ear and blood's everywhere. I flip the ear into the crowd, right? I'm like screaming and hollering. And he's just standing, it was awful. <laughs> anyway, here's, here's what I'm gonna this story. My parents were fully committed to the Easter play. Peter's sword was a handmade, historically accurate fisherman's knife, right? The ear was as perfect as it had any right to be for like a small town Easter play. The blood was plentiful, right? I was committed. I flailed around and I hollered. But Peter, Peter was not feeling it, right? And the result of Peter not feeling it was just comedy. So commitment, as it turns out, like matters quite a great deal. But the thing about commitment is it's got to be all the way. And it's also got to be to the right thing. Now the actual Bible story this week isn't funny, unfortunately, hence starting with a joke. But the commitment issues, and what it looks like when the actors in the scene aren't all ready to buy in, are the same. So here's John's account in chapter 18. Jesus went out with his disciples to a place where there was a garden. And now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place because Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas brought a detachment of soldiers together with police from the chief priests and the Pharisees. And they all came there with lanterns and torches and weapons. And then Jesus, knowing all that was to happen to him, came forward and asked them, whom are you looking for? And they answered, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus replied, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with him. And when Jesus said to them, I am he, they stepped back and fell to the ground. And again, he asked them, whom are you looking for? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you're looking for me, let these people go. And this was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. I did not lose a single one of those whom you gave me. And then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it, struck the high priest's slave, and cut off his right ear. The slave's name was Malchus. And Jesus said to Peter, put your sword back in its sheath. Am I not to drink the cup that the Father has given me? Right, there are a few quick notes to make here, and then there's one absolutely huge note. The quick notes, we'll do these real fast. One, Jesus goes to a public place that he had visited often. And this tells us, even though Jesus knows that he is going to be betrayed, right, he is not hiding. He's not going somewhere to, to try and hide from what's coming. Second, we see that Judas brings all of the powers of Jerusalem into the garden to confront him. All the different powers of Jerusalem. Right? So the soldiers here are Roman, the authorities, and the police are like local authorities to Jerusalem, and then also there are the Jewish temple leaders there along with their like servants as well. And so we see everybody, right? It's not just Rome, it's not just the religious elites, like everybody is there to capture Jesus. And then third, they bring lanterns and they bring weapons, which is notable because it means that they're expecting Jesus to hide somewhere in like a cave around the edge of the garden or possibly to resist them. 
right? But Jesus does not do those things. And then fourth, lastly, the guards insult Jesus by the name that they give him here. He's not addressed as a rabbi, right, which is what he is, that would have been appropriate. He's also not called Jesus ben Joseph, which is Jesus' son of Joseph, which would have been like the most common and the most appropriate name they could have referred to him as there. Instead, he's called Jesus of Nazareth. And there are reasons for that, right? First, Nazareth is a backwater, it's a low-class town, so they're reminding him of his upbringing, but more critically, it's not the place that the Messiah is supposed to come from, right? The Messiah is supposed to come from Bethlehem. And so those are the quick notes, right? And they add up to this story where Jesus is being treated like a villain, right? But he faces that treatment with calm assurance. But what about the big note? Let's go back to that slide. Oh, it's still there. Great. Do you see the odd formatting around Jesus' words when he says, I am he? Some of your Bible translations will like keep it weird. Some of them smooth it out and just kind of write the words. But in the versions where you see that it's strangely formatted, there's a reason for that. And the reason for that is because that's not actually what Jesus says. Jesus doesn't say, I am he. The he is an addition that's been made in translation for clarification purposes. In Greek, what Jesus simply says is, Ego, I am he, which means only I am. So what's the big deal, right? Well, the big deal is twofold. First, it connects how Jesus identifies himself here to this like literary theme that's going all through John's gospel. This is not the seventh time in John's gospel that Jesus has identified himself as ego ime. And in each previous case, the words that follow tie Jesus to these specific ways of God, these ways to God and of God. So we saw back in 648, he says, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the gate. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the true vine. And so Jesus is connecting those who trust him to God's life and hope and ultimate kingdom. So that's the first part of like the wonder here. The second part the wonder here is that these words in chapter 18 where Jesus says, I am, but does not attach anything to those words, are also the same phraseology, right, that we find all the way back in Exodus. And the prophet Moses has been called to a burning bush, you guys might remember the story, and in that bush, God has revealed himself to Moses, and he's tasked Moses with returning to Egypt to rescue his people. He's giving Moses Moses' job. Then we read this, it says, But Moses said to God, If I come to the Israelites and say to them, The God of your ancestors has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said further, Thus you shall say to the Israelites, I am has sent me to you. It's always saying that ego I am a is how the name of God was translated from Hebrew to Greek. And it's also notable that Ego Iomenet is how God identifies himself specifically to people that he intends to deliver. So the combined authorities of all of Jerusalem, the Roman authorities, the local authorities, the temple authorities, they all ask, are you Jesus of Nazareth? And Jesus says, in one breath, I am Jesus, 
and I am God, come to rescue you. I do that whole bit there because I want you to see the full commitment of Jesus to this scene. All that Jesus has been saying and teaching and enticing his disciples to believe has now been revealed. There's no secret left about Jesus's identity or about his purpose, right? Saying these words tells us who he is and what he's doing. Moses once submitted himself to death in order to see that God's people would be rescued from slavery. And now that story of Moses and the rescue of the Israelites is revealed as this testimony to this bigger story that God has always been writing so that those who know the connections and hear Jesus' words might finally trust and believe what God is up to. I am He. And then there's this moment in this revealing twist in the John story where the meaning and the power of what's just happened, of what Jesus has just said, is understood not by Jesus' disciples who've been following him all this time and he's been teaching. It's understood by Jesus' accusers. And so when Jesus said to them, I am he, when he says the divine name, they stepped back and fell to the ground. He uses the divine name and it's honored, if only for a moment, and then in that context, it is Peter, always Peter, who interrupts the scene, right? The guards are already rendered powerless by Jesus' words, by this experience, recognition of Jesus' identity. And then, while they're powerless, Peter attacks them anyway. Malchus's ear goes into the crowd, right? There's blood everywhere. Tension breaks, and then Jesus is taken to prison. I started today by saying that over the next three weeks, we would be discussing three fully embodied commitments made by Jesus in these chapters. And the first of those commitments is to his name. To his name. We've seen Jesus finally take on the whole identity that belongs to him. He is in flesh and blood God. He is, as Moses once was, a rescuer of God's people. He is also, as the guards taught him, Jesus of Nazareth, which is to say a friend of these people he has promised to protect. Even in this moment, right, where he finally, after the ear slicing, he steps forward to make sure that none of his friends are hurt or arrested. But the thing about Jesus, as we learned last week, is that his purpose his rescue plan, his intimacy plan that we talked about last week is always about fostering our commitment to our identity too. Jesus is fully committed to who he is. We need to be fully committed to who we are. We are God's children, as David talked about. And God's desire for us, as we've seen throughout John's gospel, is to accept his name as our own name to welcome his spirit into our very hearts. Because as we've seen, that's how this rescue, this restoration of intimacy with us actually takes place. And so Jesus is so fully committed in this moment for the purpose of helping us find the courage to be fully committed ourselves. And so if all of that is true, which I think it is, there is both great tragedy and there's great hope 
in the story that comes right after this one. So we'll continue in verse 12. It says, So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. And first they led him to Annas, the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. And Simon Peter followed, and so did another disciple. And since that disciple, the other disciple, was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard, but Peter stood outside at the door. And so the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. And the servant girl at the door said to Peter, You also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? And he says, I am not. Jesus has been taken into the city to face the high priest, an unnamed disciple. It's church tradition to believe that this disciple is John. This other disciple is already known to be one of Jesus' friends. He's allowed in to wait, right? Peter can't get in. The other disciple talks to the servant. She opens the door. And then what's notable about all that backstory, right, is that the gig is up, isn't it? Like, the other disciple already told her who he was. That's why he's being let in the courtyard in the first place. So the gig is up, and she asks Peter this plain question, right? You aren't a disciple, are you? And, like, when she asks it, you guys know the right answer. You even know the right answer in Greek, right? The right answer is, ego iame. Peter can do exactly the thing here that we've been saying John's Gospel is trying to train us to do, which is to find the courage to accept the identity that Jesus is offering to us. Through Jesus, by trusting in Jesus, we can once again find full rest in who God says we are. So yes, Peter, like, ego I mean, I am. But this isn't what Peter says. Instead, he utters two brief words. He says, uch I mean. I am not. The servant girl lets this go. And then later, Peter's warming himself by a fire in the courtyard, and others are there, and they say to him, You also are not one of his disciples, are you? And again, he denied it and said, Look, I am not. A second, a second chance, right? Peter fails again. And then finally, aha, moment of connection. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, Malchus returns, or at least a cousin of Malchus returns. And this person asks, did I not see you in the garden with him? And Peter again denied it, and at once a rooster crowed. Peter sticks with I am not. So even with all of Jesus' promises, all of Jesus' words of comfort at the Last Supper, which had just happened, all of the miracles Peter had seen Jesus perform, including, of course, healing the ear that he had severed like just moments ago, Peter still isn't ready to be fully committed to the name Jesus is offering him. He still has doubts. So I think it's worth asking, why? Now here's the thing about commitment. Commitment is something is not something that we ever really have more of. Consider what it's like to sit in a chair, which you're all doing, right? The full weight of your body is always somewhere. Before you sit down in your chair, the full weight of your body is on your feet, right? When you sit all the way down, the full weight of your body is now on the four legs of the chair. The ratio of how much you're relying on yourself versus how much you're relying on those spokes of metal can shift, but it's always the same amount of weight. 
It's always the same amount of commitment. The question is really about where you put it. And the trick that the chair exposes, right, is that anything less than 100% commitment on your seat is still really 100% commitment on you. And Peter's struggle has always been about learning to stop relying on himself. That's why he denied his friend. That's why he cut off a man's ear. But Jesus is asking him, has been asking him, to allow the ratio to shift, to take a load off for once, and allow God to give him rest. But Peter's just too frightened to ever really do it. And so what he does is he like ends up hovering over his seat all the time, taking on the appearance of somebody who's trusting in a chair, but really straining every muscle in his legs to keep holding up his own weight. The Gospel of John is this long, patient story of God waiting for us, of Him encouraging us, explaining things to us, even taking a seat for us so that we can see what it's like. And what I hope we can see today is that first, Jesus knows who He is. He knows who He is. And second, that Jesus will wait for us to figure out who we are. A fun postscript to my Easter story. When I was 16, first of all, smash it, the whole thing went great. Second, we did it again the next year. When I was 16, my dad took over the role of Malchus, and I got to be Peter. You can bet like, that the ear cutting was gangbusters that day. Like, highlight of the whole play. Full commitment. But because I was Peter that second year, I got to be in a few extra scenes. It means I got to do the denial here by the fire. And then I also got to do another scene around another fire that happens right at the end of the story. You might know it, right? We'll actually talk about it again in a few weeks. But here's the teaser. And Jesus has died, and Jesus has risen from the dead. And Jesus offers Peter three more chances to say who he is. He asks, do you love me? This time, Peter says, yes. Now there's more to that story, but we can close with this. If you're not ready to trust who Jesus says he is, that's okay. But what I want you to consider, what I want you to recognize today, one thing I don't want you to forget, is that you are always standing on your own two feet, right? You're standing on your own two feet. Your weight is always somewhere. You're always 100% committed to something. The question is, are you committed to the best thing? Once upon a time, an actor playing Peter was more committed to not looking weird in front of his friends than he was to his partner. Once upon a time, my parents and I were, I would say, clearly overly committed to making, to making a short, simple scene into a spectacle. But behind those performances was the story about a God who is so fully committed to who he is that he might, he just might be worth letting go of ourselves and trusting. Now, it won't all happen at once, right? Sometimes we all shift in our chairs. 
that his love has led him to be patient with us. For my money, that's actually the most persuasive part of the whole thing, that God waits. He puts himself in harm's way so that we can have a little more time. That's who he is. It's who I want to be.